Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Target novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason. I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We continue our month-long detour from the Target novelizations. We are in the 1985 books, in between books 95 and 96. We will get to book 96, The Mind of Evil, in December, and then book 97, The Mythmakers, and all the other good stuff following after that, including three consecutive Patrick Troughton novelizations closing out the year 1985. But for now, we are a week away from the official return of the RTD2 era, with the David Tennant and Catherine Tate special, The Star Beast, the novelization of which is coming out in just a couple of months. It's been about 13 months since the last new full-length Doctor Who episode aired, The Power of the Doctor, Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall's Farewell. There was the Children in Need special that just dropped. I have not had a chance to see it yet. But what I want to do this week is take stock of our favorite Doctor Who stories of all time for the last 60 years. I have my list a portion of which I revealed at L.I. Who during the Doctor Who 6460 panel that I moderated over the summer in August 2023. My guest today was supposed to be on that panel with us, but had to leave the convention early. So he's going to join us here, Sean Lyon, who I've known for a very long time online. I count him as a friend. Sean does a tremendous job with the Gallifrey One convention team in Los Angeles. He has been involved since the very beginning. Sean has also written a couple of nonfiction Doctor Who books. We are going to compare and contrast our lists this week. We are going to reveal our lists 10 at a time and interject with comments and questions to each other. It was a terrific conversation. It was essentially done live to tape with very little editing. I did notice as I was playing back that I misspoke a couple of times, conflating episode titles, the sort of things I could ordinarily try to fix in post-production, but the conversation was so good, I'm just going to leave it as is. I will conflate the web of fear with the enemy of the world, and I will conflate the curse of Peladon with the curse of Fenric as we continue over the conversation but hopefully you will catch my meaning from the larger context. It was terrific talking to Sean at length. Usually at Galley, he has a lot going on, so getting a 90-minute conversation is just not going to happen. Very pleased that he took the time out to do the podcast episode with me. There is a lot of other news in the Doctor Who world. The book Pull to Open by Paul Hayes from 10 Acre Films has recently released as has the Simon Gurrier biography of David Whittaker. I have the former. I've read the former. The latter is on its way to me. I am very much looking forward to reading it. The sixth edition 
of the Doctor Who magazine of Warp of Warp, published by Gareth Cavanaugh and edited by Colin Brockhurst, has also just been announced. I do have a small piece in that, the details of which I'll be happy to share with you very shortly. But these are all topics that I intend to devote future episodes to. So for now, let's turn back to my fantastic conversation with Sean Lyon as we reveal each other's top 60 Doctor Who stories of all time. Let's get to it. The vervoids are probably the best dirty joke in Doctor Who. They're hermaphroditic plants. A lot of plants are. So there you go. That's it's based on science. No, they'll ship anything. There are probably 11 in handle shippers out there. You just have to drill a hole where his mouth is and you're all set. You know he needs the room. I've seen it in pictures. I'm not saying you're not a fan. I'm saying you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Doctor Who gives a A drunken Doctor Who podcast for the end times. You are listening to Doctor Who Literature. Keep turning the pages! My next guest was supposed to join me at L.I. Who in August for my Doctor Who 6460 panel, celebrating the top 60 stories of Doctor Who's first 60 years, spanning the period from Unearthly Child all the way through Power of the Doctor, with the next set of episodes due to air very, very shortly after this episode releases, we are taking stock of our personal top 60s for the last 60 years, 1963 to 2022. I have known this guest for about 30 years. We go all the way back to Rec Arts Doctor Who. We actually participated in the same fan fiction project in 1998 or 1999, which did not last much beyond our limited contributions. <laughs> we have also both submitted reviews to the Doctor Who Ratings Guide, but Sean Lyon, you are also the front man of Gallifrey One, which you have been doing for a very long time. And you are also an author. You have published, I believe, a series of books on the relaunch of Doctor Who around 2005. Yes, sir. Yeah, it was 2005 and 2006, Back to the Vortex and Second Flight about the first uh, two series of Doctor Who when it came back from TELUS Publishing. And yes, I have been doing Gallifrey One for 34 years, and I'm only 29, so that's my story. <laughs> I did not go to my first galley until 2008, which is when I was living out in the area. And then I came back to New York shortly thereafter, didn't make it back to galley for another six years, but now I'm pretty much an annual... And I am looking forward to seeing you in a few more months. Absolutely. I had to really sad that I had to cut my uh, my time in Long Island Who short. But uh, that was the same weekend that uh, L.A. got its first remnants of a hurricane in my entire lifetime, Hurricane Hillary. So I took an early flight back. So, But I was very disappointed that we couldn't do this when I was there. That's uh, the odd thing about climate change. We are getting once in a century climate disasters every single week of the year. Absolutely. And Eli, who also became a COVID super spreader event at the same time. Yes. And unfortunately, I got COVID there too. The first time in three and a half years that I got it. So, but thankfully, vaccinated boosted everything just like everybody should be. So I was very fortunate. I try and do a weekly show and I have not missed a week in two years. I was able to get Conrad from Big Finish to read my voiceovers for the following week's episode. So I had a literal actor playing me for the week that I had COVID and couldn't speak. Oh, that's fantastic. He's the one of the people that I've never been able to get out. And he was going to come a couple years ago, Conrad Westmoss, and he couldn't make it. So 
Hopefully he was soon. a very late scratch, I think, two galleys ago, and hopefully we'll yeah. get to see him sooner or later. Fingers crossed. He's a wonderful guy, but so are you. How long have you been a Doctor Who fan? Since 1987, since I was 17. Actually, technically since I was 16. Um, my my first memory is uh, watching Eldrad fall into the pit at the end of The Hand of Fear here on KCET in Los Angeles. And uh, I kind of kind of fell into uh, the Doctor Who fan club here in LA, the Time Middlers of Los Angeles, and in 87, and uh, was involved with that for quite a, quite a bit. And then in, in 1989, we started working on the convention that would become Gallifrey One in 1990. And I believe Galley is now the longest continuously operating Doctor Who convention in North America? In the world, actually. In the world, so, wow. Yeah. Yeah, we've been, I, we, we say we're annual, obviously. Uh, uh, 2021 doesn't count because everything was shut down. But yes. uh, yeah, we've been doing it every year. We were first in May for two years, and then we moved to February. So it's a great time for people to get out of out of the Northeast, out of the UK, terrible weather, to mostly bright, sunny Los Angeles in February. It's great. And of course, it is a three-day weekend, so we have the benefit of the federal holiday for President's Day. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, and um, you know, we've been doing it for quite a while. We're uh, we're we're in the process of planning for February 2024 um, with Billy Piper and Alex Kingston and hopefully a bunch more guests. So um, it should be fun. Well, I am very very excited for Billy Piper. I was actually supposed to go to Billy Piper's last galley, but that was the year that a major snowstorm socked New York City mm-hmm. on the night that I was going to fly out, and yeah. I couldn't get the flight the following morning, so I had to just throw up my hands and stay home. Very bitter. Yeah. And, you know, she actually, um, the day before she was supposed to fly, she had canceled saying, because she was sick, she had the flu. And then, um, uh, but I didn't know this, she'd canceled with the sponsor. And then the next morning when they finally told me, um, they said, well, the bad news is she canceled yesterday. The good news is she decided to get on the flight anyway. So she came out and was there the entire weekend. So, wow. So yeah, it was really, it was really disappointing, but I got to announce to everybody on Thursday night, actually Billy Piper is in the building. So it was great. Mm-hmm. And thanks to climate change, New York city does not get snow anymore. It was 65 degrees today in mid to late November. So hopefully I will never wow. have another snowstorm block me from coming to your convention. Yeah. Fingers crossed, but I mean, yeah, fingers crossed, but, but climate change is still real and it's a terrible thing. So, well, we're on the same page on that too, but uh, let's compare our pages. I apologize for one of the most ham-handed segues of all time. Let's compare our pages of top 60. You are my guest. Okay. And you are going to start. You read your 60 through 51, and then okay. I'll do the same. You bet. And I want to apologize to anybody who is strictly a fan of the new series. Mine is very heavy classic because I am mostly – I mean, I'm a fan of everything, but my, you know, my first love is the classic series. So backwards from 60 is uh, The Power of the Doctor, the recent special. Ghostlight, Paradise Towers, Vengeance on Veros, Warrior's Gate, which I will say that I've become a lot bigger fan of recently because I, I don't think I ever really understood it when I first saw it way back when. Uh, the Hand of Fear, and as I said before, that was the very first story I ever remember seeing. Uh, Frontier in Space, The Demons, The Tomb of the Cybermen, and The Time of That's interesting. We have some overlap uh, with our bottom 10, I should say. 
but it amazes me that your very first story, Hand of Fear, is still, after all this time, one of your top 60. My very first story that I saw any part of at all was Time Flight, and the first story that I saw a full 25-minute installment from was Arc of Infinity. And spoiler alert, neither of those cracked my top 60. <laughs> well, I think my I think the first story I saw the entirety of was Destiny of the Daleks. Um, but I had just caught, the, like I said, the end of Hand of Fear, and then I watched it for the first time at the next go-round. Because we had, we were getting Tom Baker and then John Pertwee and Tom Baker, but the omnibus editions every weekend. Um, and for the longest time, it was just those two doctors. Um, but I also wanted to point out that The Tomb of the Cybermen was the first black and white story I ever saw as well. Um, I think all the way through. I, I remember vaguely seeing a little bit of Seeds of Death with, that's the Patrick Troughton Seeds of Death, yeah, um, at a convention. But um, that was the first one I actually sat through the entire thing. So I'll, a couple of comments and then one question. When we did the top 60 at LI Who, and I had to find somebody to pinch hit for you, there were six of us, and we each gave 10 stories, except for Keir Hansen, who gave 11. Out of those 61, top 60, 30 were new series, 30 were classic series, and one was huh. a TV movie. So we had a perfect split between classic, new, and intermediate. My list is much more heavily geared towards the classic series, as is yours. So your only new series out of the bottom 10 is Power of the Doctor. Just briefly, what about Power of the Doctor sings to you? Uh, the entire um, sequence in the regeneration world, the dream world, the the edge of the cliff with Jody, with David Bradley, with uh, Peter, Colin, Sylvester, and Paul. I mean, there is... I can't, I can't tell you in the last 10 years a scene that has resonated with me more than that scene just because, I mean, that was a gift to Doctor Who fans, that entire sequence. Um, and the other I will say briefly is uh, when they started playing Rasputin by Boney M. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, I was all over um, social media at that point saying, Rasputin by Boney M is a tradition at conventions at least in California, I don't know where else, but definitely in California uh, as part of our dances. And every time Rasputin would come on, people would come to the dance floor and, you know, twirl around the sides and, you know, make a big, you know, rose around everything. It just, it, it was such a tradition. And that also felt like kind of a, kind of a, um, a gift to fans, at least here on a personal level. But definitely that one moment with Jody and the, the edge was amazing. Here's a story from Galley. 2022 i did the friday night guest receptions this is almost two years ago now and sacha dewan was one of the guests and of course you get five minutes with him at the table before he moves on to the next table so he asked each of us what we thought was going to happen in power of the doctor and my prediction had been that joe martin was going to co-star and was going to regenerate into david bradley at the very end of it hmm. and i ended up not being quite correct on that but when david bradley showed up i punched the air in excitement. And the other thing that Sasha said to our table is, how would you like it if Jody Whitaker regenerated into me? And we all applauded and cheered and thought it was a great idea. We didn't know that he was spoiling us as to what was actually going to happen in the episode that was still eight months away. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he's really good in it too. I, uh, I was, I was really disappointed. I don't think he's going to be in any of the, the new shows. Um, and I think he was an excellent master. I actually think everybody 
has been an excellent master going back to to um Derek Jacobi when he came on the new show and so but um yeah power of the doctor definitely i'm most of the era is not necessarily in my favorites but power of the doctor just was the right episode at the right time and it was a great like swan song for Jody the one time I very rarely lose control of my emotions when watching the new series, but when William Russell showed up at the very end for his six word cameo, I completely lost it. So that moment too. Yes. How could you forget when, and Katie and Bonnie Langford just, wow. Amazing. So the only thing that I wish that it also happened there is Nicola Bryant had been part of it as well. Um, just speak i mean you, the the continuity from big finish is that she came back to the us or came back to um the earth um back to america it would have been nice to see that but but you know beggars can't be choosers that was a great scene too and the regeneration was beautiful oh yes and jody whitaker did a script reading at galley 2023 and i now have a script the power of the doctor co-signed by both jody and Chris Chibnall. So that is now one of my prized possessions. Nice. Can I just put in a word for, for Chris? He is, you know, there's, there's a lot of controversy about his era. I will say that Chris Chibnall is one of the nicest, most generous human beings I've ever had at my convention in 34 years. He is an absolute gem and doesn't deserve some of the scorn that he gets online and just is very passionate about the show and loves Dr. Who. So Take it from me. He's a he's a wonderful person. He was just so generous with his time. He was giving away his autographs for free, when not for nothing. He could have charged twenty five bucks like everyone else, but he just sat there for an hour at a time, two of the three days, and signed anything and yep. had a little bit of chit chat with each guest, even though the line attendants needed to keep things moving because the line was out the door and around a couple of corners down, yeah. down on, the, on the ground floor level but he was just meeting him was a huge highlight really changed my perspective on him for sure i'm glad to hear that he's terrific i'll give you my bottom 10 paradise towers i have in at number 60 talons of wang chiang husbands of river song curse of peladon the end of the world 10th planet the two doctors sea devils crusade and creature from the pit oh okay there we disagree. I think Creature from the Pit is one of the worst Doctor episodes of all time, but it's fine. I love that season except for that story. That's all I will say. I want to defend that one. Creature from the Pit, you know, you and I were both on Rec Arts in the early and mid-90s, and Creature from the Pit was everybody's favorite whipping boy. Mm-hmm. If you set aside the fact that the Arado prop just doesn't work as conceived or executed... It is actually one of the wittiest scripts Doctor Who has done. Jeffrey Belden is a delight playing the astrologer. And there's a scene in part four when the Doctor and Lala Ward, and bear in mind, this is their very first episode recorded together. They do a scene only using the word yes. And you can just absolutely see why they got married because the sparks Mm -hmm. flying between them in this one 60-second scene written by Douglas Adams is an absolute delight. That shell? Yes. When we first landed, it was making a noise. Yes. Could it have been a distress signal? Perhaps it was calling for help. Yes. But after 15 years... Tythonians live for up to 40,000 years, mistress. So 15 years in the pit for one of them would be no more than the wink of an eye. Yes. Doctor, I'm sure there's some terrible danger. 
danger. Yes. And Arata wants to be out of the pit and free to escape in his craft before something dreadful happens. Yes. But, Doctor, you've played right into his hands. You've let him go. Yes. Well, can't you say anything but yes the whole time? Yes. After he's told us whatever it is. Yes. And before he reaches his space vehicle to escape. Yes. Do remind me to give him back his photon drive. Yes. Yes. So that's why Creature cracks, not a top 10 story, but it is a top 60 for me because even though the prop is bad, I love watching it so much. Yeah, I mean, there's something wonderful about pretty much every Tom Baker story anyway. Actually, the entire series, to be honest with you. But, but and I will agree with you that Tom and Lala are terrific. The guest cast is great. I just, I really hate that script. Other than that, it, it, it's fine. But like I said, that's, that's actually my personal favorite season of the show. Um, just that one story just rubs me the wrong way. So, but I do want to, I do want to mention that, um, we're doing this top 60. So none of these are what we would consider bad episodes. These are like the top 60 of all of Dr. Who. Um, and it's interesting that we both put Paradise Towers here. I think Paradise Towers is probably the episode of the, or excuse me, the story from the original series. Most, I think that's grown on me over the years because I hated it when I first saw it. I thought it was terrible. And just every every time I see it, it just gets better. I hated it too when I was a teenager because of the cynicism involved, the cynicism involved and you know the horrible things that happened. Then I read High Rise by J.G. Ballard, which is the most nihilistic book that I've ever read. And it just I was solo parenting for a six-month stretch when I read that book. And that book just set me into a spiral. But when I watched Paradise Towers again during my pilgrimage, after two straight years in real time of Eric Sayward stories, Paradise Towers, number one, is the first Doctor Who story since Vengeance on Varus that has no continuity, does not require you to have seen any other Doctor Who before. Secondly, even though High Rise is nihilistic and has a horrible, really depressing last few chapters, Paradise Towers Part 4, everybody comes together sets aside mm-hmm. their differences, and contributes to the fight to defeat the menace. It is the most cheerful, optimistic Doctor Who story you will have seen in 1987, going back to the end of the Tom Baker era. So when you watch it in sequence, it is just gorgeous. So I hated it as a kid. I'm not putting it in my top 10, but it's a perfect choice for number 60. Yeah, it's, you know, I didn't I didn't read the book High Rise. I saw the film, the, the Tom Hiddleston film. Oh, yes. Um, and... I, I I recognize where Paradise Towers was trying to go, I guess, from that. Um, I think it was probably originally conceived a lot darker than it ended up being. Um, but some of it is just the world building is amazing with the different Kang tribes and with Pex, the 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 misfit and the old women who are, you know, the cannibal old women. I just it's everything about that story to me it just says this is a different kind of Doctor Who. I think personally, I think that's probably one of the best um, Doctor Who stories of the of the Sylvester McCoy era, just from that world building um, perspective. Not necessarily my favorite, but but definitely really high up there. It was great to see on the season twenty four Blu ray collection Colin Baker just sitting up in his chair and going, "I wish I had been in this story." That was a great moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a couple of other points. Um, some of these stories have to stand in for others. If I had my druthers, every single William Hartnell historical, including the caveman one, would be in my top 60. I couldn't do that. I was trying to be as representative as possible. 
So the Crusade is standing in for a lot of other Hartnell historicals. So the Aztecs mm-hmm. is not on my list. The Crusade is in for it. I wasn't going to put multiple Christmas specials. So Husbands of River Song, I put it at number 58 because it is the story where the Doctor and River, and you thank Peter Capaldi and Alex Kingsman for this, it's the story where they have the best chemistry together. So it just edges out Christmas Carol for me as the best Christmas story. That's why it's there. Talons should have been a lot higher, but the more I see it, the more I am in tune with the racism. And not just the anti-Asian attitudes, but there's a smidge of anti-Semitism in there. So Talons I want to acknowledge as a great script, but I knocked it down to second to last because of the racism, overt and intended sure. by Robert Holmes or accidental. Yeah, that's fair. I, I they're, Both of those stories are actually on my list higher up. I will say that Husbands of River Song has one of my absolute favorite scenes of all time in Doctor Who, and that is when she is standing there protesting about how the Doctor would never be around her. She looks at him, and he uses those words, hello, sweetie. I mean, just, that is that is just phenomenal. And I, I grinned ear to ear the first time I saw that, and I love that story. Um, and I will tell you that I totally understand and agree with you on the point you made on Talon's Wang Chiang. Um, the reason why I think it's higher on my list is, so it was very infamous here because it aired in Los Angeles. I think it aired twice. And then it was banned by our public television station, KCT, and they never showed it again because there was an outcry from, and rightfully so, an outcry from the Asian American uh, community here in Los Angeles as being very racist. Um, So I never saw Talon's Wang Chiang until it was on DVD. So... And it just, and I love the the Sherlock Holmes kind of nostalgia. I think Jago and Lightfoot are a terrific pair. Um, but yeah, I recognize it's it's very problematic, as is a lot of earlier Doctor Who. And as are some elements of the new series where there are fat jokes and everything up until the moment that Chris Chibnall arrives. But we are not here to do our bottom 60. <laughs> we are here to do the top 60. So, Sean, yes. let's have you our 50 through 41 and get some more positivity back in here. Sure. And I think this is the one where it's like everything but one is um, is classic series. And the one, I will preface, the one on here is is problematic with a lot of people, but I want to explain why. Um, so going backwards, the Romans, uh, the Caves of Andrazani, which I know is... Um, well-known as one of the uh, classics of the original series. A lot of people put that in their top 10. Uh, Enlightenment and Legopolis. Legopolis, I think, is a brilliant ending, and it was actually, I think, the first time I had watched the story repeatedly uh, was Legopolis, just because I thought it was terrific. Kerblam, which is the problematic one, so let me hold on for a second. Um, The Stones of Blood, which I just absolutely love. That was my probably my favorite part of the Kibitan season. Terror the Vervoids. Um, well, let me let me say something about that too. Uh, but then going backwards, Underworld, the Mutants, and the Ambassadors of Death. Um, Terror the Vervoids, the first time, in 1987, the first time I sat down through Doctor Who was at TimeCon in San Jose, California. Um, and I sat in the video room, I was 17, sat in the video room for six hours watching the entirety of Trial of the Time Lord in order and absolutely loved it. But the one story that really, really got me was Terror of the Vervoids. And I think just because it was kind of a, it, it, it felt like a, um, a ghost story on the, the old Moors type of, you know, the, the scarecrows that are coming at people, but instead it's, you know, the, the plant creatures, they look pretty silly, but 
it's a terrific story. And The Ambassadors of Death, I actually saw for the first time through when they had colorized it. I'd seen bits of it, but never had sat through it and and just think it's terrific. And I think The Ambassadors of Death and The Mutants are two of the stories, I think, that really have changed my opinion of the John Pertwee era. Because I didn't care for the Pertwee era, I would say, probably f- until I was in my 40s. And I have just become such a fan of of John Pertwee and and that that era of the show. And the mutants is one of the, I think the most underrated classics of the whole thing. It's really, really good. And it's really well done and produced. And it always feels like it's on another planet. So, and ambassadors of death is just, I think is brilliant. So, but let me real quick, before you jump into yours, let me just go back to Kerblam. I recognize the complaints people have with Kerblam. Kerblam, I think is a terrific story, which unfortunately it is a, it is a, parable uh, about Amazon and we all know it but the complaint on it has been that it basically lets Amazon win at the end and I recognize people's perspective on that but I also think it is just I think it it shows Jodie Whittaker and the rest of the cast having the most fun they've ever had on the show because it just feels like everybody's really enjoying themselves when they're when they're making it and I think it's a really great story, even if the bad guys kind of win at the end and the doctor lets them. I love your second tier, by the way. So I'll tell you that Ambassadors, Amagopolis, and Enlightenment are all very high up on my list. So I'll come back to those later. Okay. The Romans is not, but the Romans, again, I have other comedy historical standing in for the Romans. So I had the Romans in mind as I put my list together. I agree with you about Kerblam. Kerblam is in my bubbling under. It didn't make the top 60. It was on my short list. And I understand that it could be seen as taking the wrong side. That being said, when the Jody era began, it was airing on Sunday nights instead of Saturday. You know, we have, at the, at the time, my daughter was you know nine years old. Actually, no, eight years old, I think. Mm-hmm. And Sunday night is a school night. I didn't have the time to find Doctor Who and then watch the full hour. So instead of watching it late Saturday night, I was now watching half the show on Sunday, half the show on Monday. That first Jody season did not sing to me, and there were very few stories that I said, ooh, I love this and have to watch it again. Kerblam, for me, was the first Jody story. And I say Jody, she's only the performer, she's not the scriptwriter or the producer. It's the first Chibnall-era story that had a pulse for me. And I'm like, wow, this is really good, minute to minute. And the ending was a slight letdown, but it was the first Jody story that really, wow, okay, this is this is really, this is good. This is what they need to do more of. Yeah. Um, Stones of Blood is one of two Doctor Whos that set me on the road to a career in the law. I was one of the few 11-year-olds watching Doctor Who on PBS. And Stones of Blood airs <laughs> for the first time for me in July 1985. That was one of the few 11-year-olds who realized that he loved courtroom drama. I got the novelization of Keys of Marinus that same month at my first Doctor Who convention. And I have had Philip Hinchcliffe on this podcast talking about the writing of the Keys of Marinus book. And I was able to thank him for instilling in me a love of the legal process. That autumn, when I started the, must have been eighth grade, we had to watch 12 Angry Men, the original black and white cinema movie in class so those things really set me on on my career course so stones of blood didn't make the top 60 it's in my bubbling under but i do love it and i'm glad that it's on your list and isn't that that scene great with the with the magara i think they're called the um yes the the swirly little blinky lawyers i mean just who could 
pull off that kind of thing other than Doctor Who. It's great. Very witty dialogue. And uh, mm-hmm. Vervoids, I don't have any Trial of a Time Lord on the list. Vervoids is my favorite of the four Trial of a Time Lord chapters. So I, I want to salute you for putting that one on as well. So my second tier, number 50, Delta and the Bannermen. 49, Fury from the Deep. Planet of the Spiders. Vincent and the Doctor. Haunting of Villa Diodati, which, by the way, thanks to you, I watched Haunting of Villa Diodati at the last gallery in that barn with 3,000 other people before the pandemic. And the audience reaction to that was great. It was the first time in over three decades we were able to show a Doctor Who the day it aired. It was wonderful. And a video message from Chris Chibnall and Jody Whittaker yeah. and Stephen mm-hmm. Moffat all at the same time. Yep. School reunion number 45, Dalek Invasion of Earth. My first Doctor Who convention was in Manhattan at the now-defunct Roosevelt Hotel, July 27, 1985. They aired movie format Dalek Invasion of Earth, my very first Hartnell. And had my father not wanted to get home to Long Island, we would have stayed for Seeds of Death, which I missed. But Dalek Invasion was my first Hartnell story, and it gets better every time I see it. Mm-hmm. That is really the story that made Terry Nation's reputation. It is perfect in every way, the script. Brain of Morbius, 43. That'll raise some eyebrows, but I think it's one of Robert Holmes' best scripts, and there's a lot of competition. 42, Dalek, which I'm sure you wrote about in um, Return of the Vortex. And 41 is The Massacre, speaking of great Hartnell historicals. I I, I want to point out that I, there are certain episodes that I've actually, um, that don't exist that I've never heard before. I've not heard the audio. I've been catching up with the ones that are animated, but The Massacre... Um, I read the Target novelization, and it's brilliant, but I've never actually heard the, the audio itself. What you need to know is that the Target novelization is not a novelization of the televised story, right. but it's John Lucarati resurrecting what may have been his original submission. The first three chapters are pretty true to what's on TV. The rest of it has nothing to do, different ending, different middle, different right. cast of characters. Um. The Massacre is very difficult to follow on audio because you really it's hard to figure out who's who. A lot of tertiary characters have long scenes to themselves without Stephen or certainly without William Hartnell. Hartnell barely has 100 words as the Abbot of Amboise. So even though the selling point of the story is that he's playing a villain, he's really not playing a villain. He's playing mm-hmm. a tertiary character who comes and goes very quickly, but it's so dark. And at the end of the story, the doctor just runs away and he doesn't do anything to try and save anybody. That's the kind of story you can only tell once. It's kind of Doctor Who's city on the edge of forever. We did nothing good here. So you have to be in the right mindset. And I hope it gets an animation now that RTD is, I guess, putting a foot on the scale. It's a really, really strong story. Can I just say, I, I feel very strongly about this. Any Doctor Who fan who complains when we get animated stories, just... Shut up, seriously. Okay, I'm sorry, but it it is, we are, Doctor Who fans are absolutely spoiled with the fact that 60 years later, people are celebrating these, these shows, including the ones that don't air and are getting animated. And I say this, having seen the animation for Web of Fear episode three, which is dreadful. Mm. But but let me tell you, the, the fact that we're getting animation at all is a godsend. How many other now-defunct shows from the 1960s are going to the trouble of reanimating their missing episodes? You, you don't see it. That's the number. Big fat zero. So I have a few more new series stories than you in this second tier. School Reunion, 
again, Sarah, the, just the return of Sarah Jane and K-9, maybe it's sort of a cheat, and maybe it really is a, a classic series story in disguise, but it's so, so emotionally satisfying. Anthony Stewart, head from Buffy, is the bad guy, and then he stuck around to do a season or two as the voice of Doctor Who Confidential. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Dalek, that was the one story that I watched the most in 2005. I probably watched that six times that, that first year, which is more than I was watching all the others. I will say Dalek doesn't make my top 60 list. And I think because it's um, it's kind of based on I one of my all-time favorite Big Finish stories, which is Jubilee. Jubilee. With Colin Baker and the late, wonderful Maggie Stables. And what a that's a it's a tremendous thing. And I think it's just, yeah, I recognize it's kind of the same story. It's a really good story, but um yeah, Jubilee is is wonderful. Okay, Sean, let's get your next ten. Let's get uh You bet. So starting with Spearhead from Space, um, which I did like I said, I was not a fan of the John Pertwee era, but I think it's brilliant. Uh The War Machines, which is great. The TV movie, which I would like to go back to. Um, the Mark of the Ronnie purely for the incredible Kate O'Mara and her and Anthony Ainley just chew that story up completely. Uh, the Deadly Assassin, Fugitive the, of the Jadoon, which I will say it was such a thrill to not be spoiled about the uh-huh. guest star in that uh-huh. story. I had uh-huh. no idea he was coming and it was wonderful. Um, Twice Upon a Time, The Aztecs, Shada, and The Husband's River Song that we've talked about. Um, I, I, with Shada, I am so thrilled that we got an animated version. I actually really enjoyed Ian Levine's animated version too. Um, I think it's just terrific that they were able to complete the story. Um, the TV movie, I, is, is always going to have a very special place in my heart. Um, Philip Siegel showed it to me three months before it debuted. I was in his office at Universal Television and um, he wanted to get my impression of it because I knew him from having come to my convention. And the first thing I told him with the voiceover that said a Time Lord has 12 lives. And I said, uh, no, a Time Lord has 13 lives. And he called <laughs> Matthew Jacobs, who is a friend of mine now, but I'd never met him. He called Matthew Jacobs and said, um, we need to change this. Uh, can we get Paul to, to reloop this? And they did. And then um, Phil and Gary Russell wrote the book Regeneration about the making of it. And they documented my, uh, my little claim to fame in there, which I really appreciated. Um, so that will always have a special place in my heart. We did, a, we did a, um, a premiere at the Directors Guild of America in Hollywood for the movie that we actually brought our TARDIS that we have for Gallifrey and for our club. Um, we brought the TARDIS there and they did a big uh, um, presentation and uh, a debut of it. But, um, first time I saw it was, I think it was, I think it was February. I want to say February. It was right after the convention, I believe. Um, so, uh, that will always have a special place for me. So I will point out your other claim to fame is shortly after the TV movie, when the original books license went from Virgin publishing back to BBC books, you appear as a character in the Gary Russell novel, business unusual. Yeah, but to be fair, a lot of Gary's friends are in that book. I <laughs> yeah. I had the I had the um, well Gary Gary and I Gary's a dear friend of mine, and he he never uh, misses the opportunity to take the piss out of me. So he hit me with a bus in that sto- in that uh, in that book. Um, right. But but my friend Trey Corte, he actually made one of the stars in the book. So Trey is always kind of uh, 
Lord did that over me a little bit. But yeah, you, you everybody in that in that book business unusual is a friend of Gary Russell's. So Gary's a wonderful person. And a vampire law student who has two thirds of my name was staked to death in the latter pages of Vampire Science. So that's my oh, nice. BBC book's claim to fame. All right, let me give you my um, third tier. So this is uh, 40 on down. Number 40 is The Time Meddler, 39, Rebos Operation. This is a very Robert Holmes-centric list. 38, Extremists. Stephen Moffat has entered the chat. 37, Demons of the Punjab. 36, Remembrance of the Daleks. 35, Snake Dance, which is not a story I thought would be in my top 60 until I made the list, and there it is right in the middle. 34, The Mind Robber. 33, Girl in the Fireplace. Getting a lot of Moffat in here. 32, Power of the Daleks. Not Power of the Doctor, but Power of Mm -hmm. the Daleks. And 31, speaking of Robert Holmes, he's back with the Deadly Assassin, which is also on your list, I believe. Yep. That's a really good list. I um, there's quite a lot of, of good stuff in there. Um, I I think I've only seen Extremist once, but I think it was probably one of the better episodes of that season. Um, and that was a really good season of the show too. Um, the Monk trilogy is a little controversial because there's not a lot of connective tissue between the three episodes, mm-hmm. and then it just sort of ends kind of flat. But I love the twist of Extremist. I love the Doctor's little book review of Moby Dick stuck in the middle of it. And mm-hmm. I love the clue about the, the the random numbers, so I wanted to get a monk trilogy story in there. Then Extremis is the one for me. Got it. Punjab again. This is just an example of Chris Chibnall's. Some of his scripting choices, the words that he uses for dialogue, I can quibble with. But in terms of the storytelling, doing a story about partition and making it so emotionally powerful, and having the monsters being a decoy, and the real villains in the story are just fellow humans. Just a wonderful, wonderful story. So there is a story in there from Jody's first season that is not yeah. Kerblam. I will say, I will say, Punjab almost made my list, as did Rosa. Those are the two I think from early, early on in the Jody Whitaker run that would have been just below my top sixty. But um, definitely, both of them have uh, um, really important things to say. Time Meddler, for me, it's the first pseudo-historical. It's a very funny story. Time Meddler is one of those stories that I could watch over and over again, never get tired of. Rebos Operation, I didn't get when I was a kid because it's a lot of characters talking. But what they're saying, once you hit a certain age and you can understand it, is just very witty. It's just a very mm-hmm. funny, funny, funny story. And then, of course, you have the bit about Binro the Heretic getting his redemption towards the end of the story. So not only right. is it funny, but it's also socially aware. Girl in the Fireplace, I mean, it's kind of similar to School Reunion for me because I think they aired back-to-back, but it's really one of Stephen Moffat's most powerful scripts. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of Moffat and Robert Holmes in, in, in this third tier. Uh, Reboss is, is up there for me as well um, in, uh, in my top 20, actually. And I will say that the scene... The first scene that is actually set on Rebus that has a lot of dialogue, it's the one where... Uh, the Graf Indicay and um, Sholak are in the room and, you know, take off their, their big robes and they're relaxing and they're talking to, um, to Garen, the, the, the con man. Yes. And he's basically selling a planet that doesn't belong to him. He's basically, he's like basically selling earth and it doesn't belong to him at all. He's just, because we live here, but he's selling it to somebody else. I think that was, 
probably one of the wittiest things I ever saw growing up. So was that scene, how they are just basically taking title to this entire planet that doesn't belong to them, um, not by force, just because just by commerce. And I think that's a, a wonderful um, story. Two other scenes in Rebos that I am inordinately fond of, the Scringe Stone scene, which is freaking hilarious. And then there's a scene in part three where the Doctor and Garen and Romana are in captivity. And the Doctor and Garen just start outdoing each other with con man stories, like Garen's story about selling the Sydney Harbor Bridge. Mm-hmm. And Romana is like, we have to get out of here. And the Doctor goes, no, 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 trust me. Well, you've been locked up as many times as I have. This is a lot more enjoyable. So mm-hmm. they just take time out from the plot to chat with each other. Very few yeah. stories have the time to do that. It's a great conversation. And those the first two scenes of the story are you know, him meeting the the white guardian and then him meeting Romana. And they are both just not only just very important scenes in the history of Dr. Who, but just in general, they're just terrific, uh, terrific scenes. The, um, the interplay between Tom Baker and Mary Tam, especially, I think I really wish we had been able to see more of Mary Tam um, because just the, the, the disdain that she uses when she's talking to him. It's like, I'm beneath this whole thing at the beginning. It's just, it's delicious. And I, I just adore her. I developed a new appreciation for her during my lockdown rewatch because they get off to this frosty start, but by the end of Armageddon Factor, they are literally finishing each other's sentences and they're doing comedy routines in unison where they say yes and no, and then no and yes at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. You have to really have good chemistry between the two of you to pull that off, and they did Absolutely. it. So she is one of the forgotten gems. We have the power to do anything we like. Absolute power over every particle in the universe. Everything that has ever existed or ever will exist. As from this moment, are you listening to me, Romana? Of course I'm listening. if you're not listening, I can make you listen. Because I can do anything. As from this moment, there's no such thing as free will in the entire universe. There's only my will because I possess the key to time. Doctor, are you all right? Well, of course I'm all right, but suppose I wasn't all right. This thing makes me feel in such a way I'd be very worried if I felt like that about somebody else feeling like this about that. Do you understand? Yes. What do you understand? That the sooner we hand this over to the White Guardian, the the better. better. We both had Deadly Assassin in this tier. Not too much else needs to be said about that. Fugitive of the Jude, I'll say that again. Fugitive of the <laughs> Jadoon. Tongue twister. Say that five times fast. Yeah. Um, I have that story a little bit later down on the list, so I'll come back to it. But I'm really glad you have it in there as well. I had not been spoiled about any of it. I was not spoiled about the return of the uh, old companion who comes back for a cameo. And I was totally in the dark about who Joe Martin's character was going to be. In fact, I'll tell you, I yeah. told the story before. When they get to the lighthouse, I thought it was going to be a backdoor sequel to Horror of Fang Rock. That's how far off base oh, it was. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. I, I had no idea what to expect. I knew that there was something weird about her, but the fact that when you first see that that torn apart TARDIS, um, it, it, just out of left field. But, but, you know, I tell you, as soon as I heard, when Graham ends up on that ship and I hear that voice for the first time, like, Oh my God, that's him. And it turned out to be him. That was, and the fact that they kept it secret, just what a, like I said, I was smiling the entire time. That was so wonderful. The actor did go on Twitter and he announced his appearance in the episode the second the UK airing ended, but that was before most folks in the States had seen it. Luckily, 
I had not seen that tweet, so I also recognized him from, from his voice. So it wasn't spoiled for me, although he tried. Smart people avoid Twitter and Facebook on a day that Doctor Who airs in the UK until they've seen it. I will just say that. Aztecs is not on my list, but again, other historicals are standing in for it. I could have every Hartnell historical on there, so Aztecs had to sit out, but great story, and I'm glad it's on your list. Um, let's have your next set. This is the fourth tier, so we're now a little more than halfway through. This is episodes 30 through 21 for you. You bet. Uh, the Keeper of Trocken, um, Rose, which is, I believe, one of the three first episodes of new series Doctors that are on my list up in the top 30. So Keeper Trocken then Rose, Four to Doomsday, Remembrance of the Daleks that you talked about a little bit ago, uh, Frontios, The Happiness Patrol, The Three Doctors, The Robots of Death, Black Orchid, and Carnival of Monsters. Um, I just actually <clears throat> recently rewatched Carnival of Monsters again because I contributed to the new Outside In book um, and wrote a, uh, a feature about that story. Um, and I will say that The Happiness Patrol is another one of those stories that I detested when it first aired. And since then, it has just completely grown on me. I love, I love everything about it now. Um, except, except that it looks like it's filmed in a studio for obvious reasons. Um, but, but other than that, I think it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant story. Carnival is your story for outside and regenerates. My story for outside and regenerates is the abominable snowmen, but I'm glad that we're both in that volume. Um, Frontios, I wanted to include in my list, but I would have all of season 21 Peter Davison in there. So again, I had to leave that out and other stories stand in, in its place. Happiness Patrol, I loved as a kid for the kitsch factor. I realize that it's highly political, although oddly when you read the novelization, none of that political stuff is in there, which makes me wonder how much of it is accidental subtext. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that statement. I think there is a lot of politics in the novelization as well. I think it's, I think it's more apparent that it is very much a, a parable against um, persecution of any minority, um, and especially... In this case, the um, LGBTQ community. Um, I think that's very much um, present on the screen, but very much more so in the novelization, I feel. The only thing that I'll say is a counter to that, and of course, we can reasonably disagree on this. There were other McCoy-era novelizations that were 160 pages long, and they were putting in tons of supplementary material. Happiness Patrol is pretty short and pretty bare bones, so yes. I don't know what else he could have put in there to make it uh, even more angry and loud, but the last time that I read the book, and this is a decade ago now, I got the sense that he was just doing a straight transcript, and he could have put in a little more context, and it, it did not. But again, reasonable folks can differ on that, and it's, it's a very good choice for your list. I have a couple of season 24s on my list. Happiness Patrol is not on there, but they can't all be top 60, unfortunately. Uh, let's see what else. Um, well, no, I was just going to talk about Rose. I, I, um, Rose, I, I wondered about this because it, it, to me, it's kind of a, kind of a throw, a bit of a throwaway story, but it's so significant to the history of Doctor Who. And it's, it's a very good, good show. Um, I, there's a lot of stuff that's come after it and before it, obviously, that, that is a, a great deal better, but it's certainly, um, does a great job reintroducing Doctor Who to the public. It re recreates that mystery. Um, I do kind of feel sometimes I wish they had put everything up to the Doctor grabbing her hand 
and saying run and then the credits. Oh yeah. Um, that would have been, I think a little bit uh, better. It just feels like a little bit anticlimactic, but it, it definitely shows you Chris Eccleston and Billy Piper are terrific. And, and it really sets the tone for the entire era. Um, yeah. So, and I got to, and I got to see that like a work print um, from who was a oh, Rob Shearman. Rob oh, wow. Sherman showed us a work print at, at Galley a couple uh, a couple months before, um, and uh, without any um, without any special effects, but it had dialogue in it. And it was Graham Burke and Robert Franks and myself. We got to see it, and so again, that's one of those things that it has a special place in my heart because I was able to see it before it was completed. But that's neither here nor there. It's a good story. I didn't put Rose on my list, but I have the end of the world in there because. Rose, I had seen the Canadian leak about a month before it aired properly, mm-hmm. so a little more advanced than the work print that you saw. But when it aired properly for the first night in the UK, I had already seen it. End of the World I put on instead, and they're kind of bookends. They're really the same story, Yeah. Um, part one and part two of the same opener. When I was watching the scene in End of the World when Rose is trapped in the office and the sun block is rising and she's about to get vaporized, I'm like, wow, this is the first time that I've watched a Doctor Who story in 15 years without without knowing already how it's going to end and having never seen it before. So that emotional response to End of the World puts it on there for me instead of Rose. But again, Rose is a very, very good choice. With Britney Spears music. I mean, it was perfect. It was wonderful. I will say, I will say, I regret not putting End of the World on my list here. And the reason why is because that scene where she is just staring at the remnants of Earth and, you know, saying it's over and everybody missed it, nobody saw it, is very, very moving. And probably, I think, the first, the first really emotional scene of the new series, um, you know, has that emotional resonance. And uh, yeah, that's definitely a good one. So I should have put that on my list too. So. Well, you can do what I did for my um, list, and you could just do Rose slash Enemy of the uh, End of the World. Perfect. Speaking of which, my number thirty is Heaven Sent slash Hell Bent. I ordinarily don't put individual stories out of new series two parters, like I would like to do Impossible Planet slash Satan Pit, but I left it as bubbling under because Impossible Planet is so much better than Part Two. I think Heaven Sent is a lot better than Hell Bent, but I put them on there together as a uh, mm-hmm. diptych, I guess is the word that Peter Capaldi, as you watch his era go along, Moffat gives him more and more to do and he crushes it every single time. He's doing this story basically by himself and it must've been a nightmare to rehearse and record, but he is more than up to the task. And, mm-hmm. you know, between the music and the, and the direction and the surprise ending, heaven said is really gorgeous. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't put, Impossible Planet and Satan Pit on there because I agree. Impossible Planet's terrific. Satan Pit's a bit of a letdown. Yeah, no more needs to be said on that because let's get to the positive stuff. Going down 29 through 21, Dalek's Master Plan, Warrior's Gate, The Curse of Fenric, which I also hated as a teenager because of the way the Doctor has to emotionally abuse Ace at the climax. Once I saw the expanded version on VHS in the mid-90s, I turned around on that story, and now I recognize it as a top 60. Turn Left is 26, and Midnight is 25. That's almost the same story, because one is Dr. Light and one is Donna Light, but Catherine Tate's performance in Turn Left, wow. Uh, Incredible. That's the only word I could say. 
Uh, moving on, Genesis of the Daleks, Blink, hello, Stephen Moffat, Enemy of the World, and Web of Fear I have back-to-back. Web of Fear I knew was great as a recon, because when you watch Enemy Part 4 as a recon, where everybody in the guest cast dies except for the Brigadier, and then after that massacre, then it turns out that Professor Travers has been taken over by the Great Intelligence. That's Doctor Who's darkest episode ever in its first five years. I didn't realize Enemy of the World was going to be as great as it was, but when the recovered video came back 10 years ago, my jaw was just dropped, and it didn't recover until the end of part six. That is Barry Letts on steroids. So the two of those are together. Can I just say that I think your reaction to Enemy of the World is mine and probably so many fans. Who would have known that this story that we all thought was lost and that we knew it wasn't very good, who would have known that when we actually saw it that it would be terrific. I mean, probably the biggest surprise in the history of recovered Doctor Who classic episodes was the fact that Enemy of the World is a really, really good story. And I'm borrowing a talking point from Radio Free Scaro here. And they said this 10 years ago when they did their episode on the, on the story's recovery, and I'm borrowing it now. Patrick Troughton is playing four roles in a six-week stretch. He's playing himself, He's playing himself as Salamander. He's playing Salamander, and he's playing Salamander as the Doctor. That's four performances mm-hmm. in the same six weeks. Wow. Just, I don't love all of the Troughton era, but I love Patrick Troughton in everything, and his guests, and his, his co-stars as well. So Enemy yeah. of the World and Web of Fear, I think those are my – well, I have one more Troughton coming up after this, but those are well-deserving of places in the inner 30. All right, let's get your, uh, let's get your 20 through 11. Okay, so uh, turn left, which we just talked about, um, and I will just say that I recently rewatched all of Donna Noble's season, the Catherine Tate season, because I wrote an article for um, the book Companions of Doctor Who um, that should be out in the next couple of months, I believe, by February. Um, I wrote an article about Donna Noble, and it was so much fun. It was it was interesting to see. How much of the first few episodes I didn't care for other than the Pompeii, but then once you hit um, really the Unicorn and the Wasp and then Silence in the Library and you go forward, it's it's really great. And Turn Left is, I think, Catherine Tate's best performance in the entire season. Um, School Reunion, which is another one you've already talked about, um, just absolutely brilliant. Uh, having Elizabeth Sladen back and the chemistry she has with David Tennant and the fact that they have K-9 and it's John Leeson. I mean, just just perfection. So that's uh, um, my first two turn left school reunion. Talons of Wang Chiang, which we already discussed. Uh, Genesis of the Daleks, because um, obviously it's place as a Dalek serial, um, but it's also a really good story. The Five Doctors is always going to have a place in my heart. Um, It's just a celebration of Doctor Who for 20 years. Uh, It was done exceedingly well. It's so much fun. Uh, The Curse of Peladon. Deep Breath, which a lot of people don't care for. I think it's one of the best uh, Doctor debut stories of all time. Um, kind of came out of left field. Uh, just having Madame Vastra and Jenny and Strax together in it, but also the dialogue is incredibly witty. If you look at the, the bedroom scene where he's talking about having this room that doesn't make sense because you only sleep in it. Um, just right. the, the, the punchy dialogue. that And I'm not, I'm not really a fan of... Clara in general, um, but he has a really good chemistry with her in that story. Um, Deep Breath is a really well done story. I think it's probably one of Moffat's best scripts ever. 
um, the rebus operation, which we talked about a little bit ago. Yes. Um, I, I sent you a list, uh, um, Jason, and I'm gonna I'm gonna swap my my uh, eleven and twelve because my twelve is now going to be Day of the Doctor. Um, it was eleven, but um, Day of the Doctor is a wonderful um, anniversary story uh, for Doctor Who. The Sunmakers. I I originally had it at twelve. I'm going to say number eleven actually because it really is one of my favorite Tom Baker stories of all time. It's a it's a really cracking script. It was really well cast. Um, I think people kind of are let down a little bit by the fact that it's um, empty corridors uh, for quite a lot of it. And I, I think that would be a mistake because it really, it, it shows Tom Baker at his best. And I think it really shows Louise Jameson at her best as well. I don't think that Louise got enough to do um, in certain uh, roles other than killing things, you know, and, and acting like she knew nothing. And she's actually very, very intelligent throughout this entire story. But that final scene between um, Tom Baker and the uh, Usurian uh, leader, um, just, just a great story. I love the Sunmakers. So that's my 10 to 20. So we have a lot of overlap between your 20 through 11 and the rest of my list. So Turn left, I have school reunion. I have talons. I have um, some of the others you'll get to a little bit later down in my list. I think the only ones there's only three out of the ten that I don't have. I didn't include Deep Breath only because I saw it first as the Marcelo Camargo print and it <laughs> didn't land for me at all. Then I saw it with the now defunct uh, Doctor Who New York fan club at a tavern in Gramercy in Manhattan in the East 20s. And when I saw it with a group of people, as broadcast on BBC America, I appreciated it more. I've got other Capaldi's that I wanted to cover. Yeah, was that work print though? Did it didn't it miss the uh, the Missy scene at the end? Wasn't that out not on it? Or am I misremembering? I honestly don't remember. I might still have that on an external hard drive, but I honestly don't recall. Yeah, I'd have to look. So I don't have Sunmakers again. I have to have some stories some stories stand in this is a tongue twister. Some stories stand in for others. But I have a lot of Tom Baker, Robert Holmes, so Sunmakers had to take a back seat and piggyback on somebody else. Day of the Doctor would have been on my list. If I did a top 50 for 50 in the year 2013, Day of the Doctor would have been on it. It fell off for this particular list, but the fact that we have 7 out of 10 as a match in this tier really speaks mm-hmm. to how we're on the same wavelength. Definitely. Day of the Doctor is just such a such a great celebration of the show. And the uh, again, I... I I wish I had stayed completely spoiler free. Tom Baker let it out that he was going to be in the uh, the end of it like a day before. And I wish he hadn't, or it was reported in the papers. Um, and I got to actually see that story for the first time at the um, 50th celebration at the Excel in London in 2013. Oh, wow. um, and um, in a room that uh, Terrence Dix was right behind us. I think Lisa Bowerman was definitely behind us. Um, I think we came in with Lisa. So it was, yeah, that was such a, that was a great weekend. It was the only time I've ever seen Tom Baker in person. And then we got to see Day of the Doctor, which was a, so much fun that night. What was Terrence Dix's reaction to Day of the Doctor, considering that a lot of it was inspired by his own The Five Doctors? I, you know, I genuinely don't remember, but I mean, everybody was cheering for it at the end. Um, so yeah, it was good fun. Let's run through my 20 through 11. Again, we have a lot of overlap in this tier for me as well. Number 20 is Fugitive of the Jadoon. Number 19 is The Invasion. 
I will say about that, it is Douglas Campfield at the top of his directing game. You have Kevin Stoney as one of the best human villains. I want to do a supercut of all the times that he says Packer in that story, because every time he says Packer, it's with a different inflection and a different temperament. That is a master class. You can teach an acting class just on saying the word Packer and nothing else, and Kevin Stoney does it. That's funny. Shut up, Packer! 18 is the War Games. Uh, it's not two episodes too long. Every episode, even though it was written on the fly, every episode introduces a new concept. So in 10, you have a dematerializing TARDIS. Um, in, you know, in episode one, episode two, then you have uh, the warlord, you have the war chief, the security chief. Every week, there is a new twist that brings you towards the arrival of the Time Lords at the very end of episode nine. So even though you could argue that it was padded intentionally because it went from a six-parter to a ten-parter, the padding is done expertly. And there's even time to bring back in episode seven a returning antagonist from episodes one and two. So war games, I think. It could have been higher, but 18 is a good spot for it. I have the God Complex at number 17 because the realization, as much as I enjoyed the story, the realization that it was a backdoor sequel to Horns of Nymon made it even better for me. And that may be the Matt Smith story that I love the most. So God Complex is well entitled in my mm-hmm. top 17, to my top 20. 16, I have Horror of Fang Rock, which is close in time to the Sunmakers, and it's both the Doctor and Leela. Um, so I have Horror of Fang Rock in there as one of Terrence Dix's absolute best scripts. Look at the amount of dialogue that he packs in, and look at the way the cast performs it. Terrence Dick has been criticized by some people as a hack for the way that he churned out novelizations, and this novelizations podcast exists to rebut that point of view. The work that he does in Horror of Fang Rock is Robert Holmes' quality. And that's all mm-hmm. from Terrence Dix's pen. Just a great Totally great agree. Totally agree. I've got Demons at number 15, Caves of Androzani at number 14. I know you have both of those. Number 13, I have The Gunfighters and Save Your Questions for the End of This Tier. Number 12 is The Green Death, which for me, there's only one Doctor Who story, classic story, that Russell T. Davies did a commentary for on the DVDs, and that was The Green Death, and you can see why. The Green Death basically inspires the new series because it is telling a story about silly monsters, but it's really a story about the emotions of the characters, and the silly monsters are just there to give them the rising action. It is a new series story done in 1973, and the departure of Joe at the end almost certainly has to be the inspiration for the Doctor and Rose saying goodbye in Doomsday in 2006. And then number 11, I have Enlightenment, which, again, one of those stories I can watch over and over again every day for a week, never get tired of it. Linda Barron, Malcolm Clark's music, The Black Guardian, Turlow turning it up to 11, Mark Strickson. Mm-hmm. Mark Strickson's panel at Galley in March in February 2020, he can run a panel all by himself without an interviewer, tell great stories. He was running around the room. Uh, reenacting scenes that happened to him when he was doing wildlife documentaries in Australia. Just a great, great guy. He is, definitely. Any questions for me? I'm sure the gunfighters, uh, you're going to be raising your eyebrows on that one. No, not at all. I um, I want to I want to speak to the war games a little bit in my top, because it's in my top 10. Um, but I will say that I all I heard for years, I hadn't seen it for a very long time. Um, and there's a reason why, I'll tell you in a few minutes. Um, 
I, I, all I'd heard was the negatives about, oh, all you hear is the last chance saloon song and it's really terrible and it's bad American accents. And it's actually a really, really good episode of Doctor Who. It really is. Um, I don't, you know, there's a, <clears throat> there's some things you can say about some of the other things in that era, like the web planet that I will agree with, but, but, but the gunfighters, I, I definitely think is, is, is a well done story. doesn't make my top 60, but by, by no means what I think it would be, be, you know, say anything negative about it. It's really good. When they were filming Doctor Who in the sixties, I'm sure you know, this it doesn't even need to be said, but it was done live to tape and the musical cues were played in live during the recording of the episode. So the actors hear the incidental music, whereas of course now it's all post-production and they have no idea what's going to be playing behind them or underneath them. You look at the way that Lawrence Payne walks slowly across the set in time to the ballad. And you look at the way that Wyatt Earp slowly opens a drawer to reveal a gun inside. And he takes his badge off to match the singing of the last chance saloon. Mm Mm-hmm. That literally makes the gunfighters a musical, a dance musical, because it is actors <laughs> choreographing their movements to the music. It literally is a Broadway musical. And yeah, yeah. people complain the ballad is repetitive. You can now stream all 254 episodes of The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp with Hugh O'Brien, the 1950s and 60s U.S. Western. You can stream all of that now on free streaming services. There is a ballad in every episode of that TV series as well. That's what you do in a Western. You have a ballad. And once Rex Tucker starts writing the lyrics in episodes three and four, because even he was getting tired of hearing the same verse over and over again, the verses that he writes were laugh out loud funny. It's like yes. therapy, listening to him being very funny. This totally is, it's your agree. last chance of earning your gunfighter's fee. The pay is in dollar, but the bullets are free. Genius. Mm-hmm. You know, we get we get as Americans, we get a lot of criticism for our terrible British accents, and um, rightfully so. There's a lot of of British actors who are great British actors who do absolutely dreadful American accents. The the, the British actors in the Gunfighters actually do, for the most part, really really good British uh, American accents. They really do. So um, no, I think I think the Gunfighters is great. I got nothing against the Gunfighters at all. And also the three Clanton brothers, the way they match up their dialogue and they, and they speak in sequence, his kid, brother, Warren, Earp, these are great actors at the top of their game. And it's, it's mm-hmm. a great, it's a comedy with a very dark ending. So it's all that you can ask for in a Doctor Who story for me. Absolutely. Again, 20 years ago, it might not have been top 60, but now it's practically my top 10. All right. So that gets us to 10 through one. You do yours, I'll do mine, and then we'll quickly wrap up. So I'm, I'm going to just speak a little bit about each of my top 10 and why I put them in the top 10. So my number 10 is Heaven Sent. I think it is the best story of the Stephen Moffat era. Um, well, I should say, I think it's the best written of the Stephen Moffat era. Um, the I, I disagree with you that it's kind of Heaven Sent and Hellbent are the same kind of story. <clears throat> um, I think Heaven Sent is something that hadn't been done in Doctor Who before, and I don't think it's been done since, but it was very unique. Um, my number nine is The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, um, which is, I think, uh, Sylvester McCoy's best story. Sophie Aldred is terrific in it. The entire cast is wonderful. Um, the It's it's very much an homage to, um, to uh, a whole different variety of genres. Uh, you know, the circus is is just a trapping for it. But um, it, it goes back to 
um, you know, mythology, the gods of Ragnarok, you know, I know it's kind of a deus ex machina when he solves the problem with the amulet, but it's a really great story. Um, number eight for me is City of Death, which is, I think, one of the greatest stories of the classic era. Um, certainly gets a lot of attention. I, I, I think it's a bad story to introduce people to Doctor Who to because then it all goes downhill from there. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, it's... Yeah, it gets complaints for like running around Paris for the first 10 minutes. I don't care. It is a masterpiece. Um, it's got that Douglas Adams wit. Um, the, the cast is extraordinary. Julian Glover and Catherine Schell are terrific. Um, everybody's really good in it. Uh, number seven, Gridlock um, is a fun romp more than anything. Try not to think too, too much into it. It doesn't really make any sense. But it's still really fun. And you can just tell the cast, the crew, they're having the time of their lives. And it's a sequel to the Macro Terror. And Who had Macro Terror, Macro Terror sequels on their bingo cards when the Russell T. Davies came back to do the new Ex- show? Exactly. I want to look back around the City of Death. Our mutual friend, Bill Evenson, who has been on many episodes of this He's podcast. He's not my friend. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he definitely is. I just went to the UK with him for two weeks. So, yeah. Yeah, I was very, I was very jealous on um uh, on social media with your photos. So Bill co-wrote a book with uh, Stacy Smith, and it was a comedy guide to Doctor mm-hmm. Who. And they did a chapter, the fifty Doctor Who stories you'd rather die than watch. And he put City of Death on there as an anti-episode guide because again, that story is so good, nothing after it is ever good again. So if you show it to somebody, none of Doctor Who will ever measure up. Absolutely. So he's making a very similar point that you did. Yeah, it's great. And running around Paris is fine, but you're running around Paris to Dudley Simpson's incredible music. Exactly. And it's a brilliant script. It's a, it's really clever, you know, with the, the, the Mona Lisa's and selling seven cop. It's just, it's wonderful. And the whole fact that it ends with the real Mona Lisa in the Louvre has, this is a fake written uh-huh. in, in ink under it is, is terrific. I just, I, it's so irreverent and I loved it. So, okay. So that was a heaven sent Greatest show, City of Death, Gridlock. So we're at my number six is Silence in the Library. And I'm going to, for one time, say that I agree with you. I'm going to do Silence of the Library and Forest of the Dead together. Okay, great. Six, because they really are one story. Um, this is, I think, David Tennant at his absolute best. Um, I think that his the, the, the interaction that he has with Catherine Tate is wonderful. But the fact that you introduce to me, one of the greatest characters in Doctor Who mythology, River Song. I just love Alex Kingston. I love the character River Song. I love what they tried to do, and I think it's a brilliant beginning for her. My number five is The War Games. And let me just say that for the longest time in my life, I had this thing about black and white. I just could not watch things in black and white with the exception of I Love Lucy and The War Games. And I can't tell you why, I could sit through the war games tonight. I could put it on and I would sit through all 10 episodes. I think it's wonderful. Um, I don't think it's padded in the slightest. Well, okay. Yeah, it's padded, but I don't think it's padded in a negative way. Um, And I just, I just love everything about it. Um, My number four, and I have three Tom Bakers on my top five. Um, uh, The first one, number four is state of decay, um, which originally, as you know, started life as, what is it? The Vampire Mutations, I think it yes. was a couple of seasons before. 
Um, it's a really, really great script. And I think that it gets a little bit of short shrift being where it is in the, um, the season that it's in. Um, as part of the, the eSpace trilogy, it gets kind of forgotten a little bit, but there is some wonderful stuff. And I think it genuinely has my absolute favorite cliffhanger of all time, which is the moment in the crypt where the vampires turn towards Romana and she's about to be devoured by them and it just cuts to the, the music. I think that's a wonderful, um, wonderful cliffhanger. My number three is my absolute favorite episode of the new series, which is Matt Smith's debut, The Eleventh Hour. I think The Eleventh Hour is the most perfect episode of Doctor Who since 2005. It is cracking script, wonderful dialogue. It, you know exactly where it's going. It, it ends with a, with a bang, you know, and it ends with him coming out and saying, I'm the doctor. And he tells the aliens what to go do with themselves. And just the whole interplay that he has with, with Amy, both as a child, as well as an adult. Um, I just, I love everything about the 11th hour and I could watch it every day. So I think it's wonderful. My number two is the face of evil. Um, my, my favorite uh, Leela story it is a terrific opener for her. I think the one thing that bothers me about it is that her father is in it and he dies immediately and we never talk about it again. Yes. But Louise Jameson's debut is terrific. And I think given a budget, they could have done, if they'd had the budget we have today, I think that story could be told today and I think they would do a great job with it um, visually. But in terms of its script um, and the fact that it's got that whole um, survey team, seventeen technicians test uh thing that goes on but the the fact that they never explain where the face came from it was just him on an earlier visit and then it was the morty expedition but we never see that adventure i think it's it's really great to have that lost adventure let me just jump in there to sing mm-hmm. the praises of louise jameson louise jameson is to the classic series what Catherine tate is to the new series Catherine tate was brought in because she's a comedian but she does incredible, unexpected, powerhouse dramatic work. And we both have some of her stories on our top 60 list. Louise Jameson, to be a little overly reductive and to be unfair to the production team, she was brought in for her physique. She was brought in to be a body in a bikini. Mm-hmm. The intelligent performance she gives as Leela, the way she personally sweats blood over every actor's choice she makes – and the way she portrays Leela in those stories, and the evolution of Leela from Face of Evil Leela all the way to Invasion of Time Leela, I don't think people appreciate enough the work that she did in making this walking bikini come to life. She's a tremendous actor. Absolutely. And there are some companions that I just completely could not get enough of during my pandemic rewatch. We haven't talked a lot about them here, but Peter Purvis is stunningly good. Annika Wills is stunningly good. Louise Jameson and Catherine Tate need to be praised more than they already are because the performance they give is a gift to fans and a lot of us don't appreciate it. Absolutely. And that companions book that I mentioned that I wrote the article for Donna, my other choice, but it had already been taken was Leela. Cause I think Leela is probably my favorite companion of the original. Agreed. As well. My choice for number one um, is always controversial. Everybody who knows me knows that this is my favorite story and they always like cringe about it until I tell them why, and then they still cringe, but they, they, I don't care. My favorite Doctor Who story of all time is Nightmare of Eden. I think that it is, from start to finish, it is 
absolute perfection. I recognize it has stupid yellow quarters. I recognize that it really, parts of it are repetitive. You know, they have to separate the ships and then they have to separate the ships and then they keep separating the ships. But it has some of the greatest scenes. Just I, everything about that story just makes me happy. And it's my it's my happy spot. Anytime I want to watch Doctor Who and I need to be cheered up, I go to Nightmare of Eden. That it has some wonderful scenes in it. The one where he's talking about uh, with the captain about um, Galactic Salvage. Um, and he says, it's gone. And it's like, I wonder why it hadn't been paid. So that's <laughs> terrific. But I tell you, it has, and I will, I will defend this until I die. I've written articles about this. I actually wrote in the first Outside In, I wrote about Nightmare of Eden. Um, it has my absolute favorite line of dialogue in 60 years of Doctor Who. And it's when they're talking about the CET machine and how somebody needs to fix it. And Romana looks at him and says, I'll need a screwdriver. To me, that is Doctor Who at its absolute best. And I will go head to head, toe to toe in a fighting ring with anybody, you know, knock down, drag out fight, defending the fact that Nightmare of Eden is my favorite Doctor Who story of all time. See, what's funny is on Rec Arts, they used to lump in those three middle season 17 stories into one derogatory sentence, quote, the creature mm-hmm. from the nightmare of Nymon. I have creature of the pit in my top 60. You raised an eyebrow. I have Horns of Nymon bubbling under. I wasn't going to put that and God Complex on the same list because, again, this is a representative list and I wanted to make room for every type sure. of story. But Horns of Nymon is there in spirit. And you have Nightmare of Eden as your number one. So those three stories that were derided on Rec Arts, between the two of us, we have all three of them somewhere in our top 60. Douglas Adams did a lot of work to rewrite those scripts, I'm sure. I don't have Nightmare in my top 60. Again, I couldn't have all of that season 17 sequence in there, but there are some howlingly funny things. David Dacre gives a terrific performance going from the straight man to the tragic figure um, with some comedy along the way when he's laughing at the passengers being eaten. Yeah. And maybe Tom Baker goes a little too far. Maybe the fact that Alan Bromley was fired on the last night of production. Maybe some of that is showing through in the studio, but if you just look at the absolute value, the novelization is great. Terrence Sticks really captures the humor in the novelization yeah. while taking away Tom Baker's excess of, oh, my fingers, my toes, my arms, my everything. I And I love my arms, my, my legs, my everything. I think that's great. Um, I do want to own up to one thing. I've never actually said this before, but I'm going to own up. 20... 21 years ago, 22 years ago, uh, Mark Fippen and I did a, a charity anthology called Missing Pieces. Um, it was a, a big, thick book. Yeah, it's a long time ago. But anyways, um, I wrote two stories in it, one under my name and one I did under a pseudonym because I didn't want to have two stories in it. It was called The Ashes of Eden, and it was a very dark period, and I wanted to write something dark. And so I wrote a sequel to The Nightmare of Eden where um, Stott goes basically crazy and destroys the mandrels and basically nukes their planet entirely and then kills oh, himself because he's sad. And everybody hated that story. All the people that I know were like, oh my God, that was awful. What a downer story. So I, I want to take ownership for that story finally. Um, mostly for Trey Corte because he's always absolutely hated that story, but he knows it was me. <laughs> so um, yeah, but but other other than the fact that I wrote the worst sequel to Nightmare Reading of all time, probably the worst sequel ever, um, I still love that story with you know, to my grave. 
Okay, let's hear yours. Number 10, Mummy on the Orient Express. It's the only new series story in my top 10. It's not the best new series story of all time, but it is my favorite new series story. From the fact that I recognized Janet Henfrey from Curse of Peladon in that first minute where she does her 66-second cameo, to Peter Capaldi doing his best Hinchcliffe-era Tom Baker impression, to the realization of The Mummy, to the fact that you have a really good guest cast that is picked off one by one in best classic series story, to the fact that the captain of the ship is so emotionally checked out that he doesn't even realize that his best security officer is a fictitious hologram. Nice. I love Mummy story. on the Orient Express. Just a great, great story. I can watch it over and over again. I probably should have more than one new series story in my top ten, but I'm proud of that one. Number nine, Unearthly Child, because the first 25 minutes is the best script word for word that Doctor is going to do for another 15, 16, 17 years. And even the caveman story has merit to it because it's basically Doctor Who going woke for the very first time. It's the Doctor helping a tribe choose democracy over fascism. Look at that. Doctor Who getting political in 1963. What? If we could separate that pilot out from the rest of it, I would totally be you know, in agreement with you. Top, top 10. Number eight, the Ark in Space. I could have a lot of Hinchcliffe on here. Um, Ark in Space is just gorgeous. Seven Pyramids of Mars, speaking of the Hinchcliffe era. Mm-hmm. Again, both incredible productions yes they're cheap yes nobody knew in 1974 that bubble wrap was going to be ubiquitous periods of mars makes a couple of weak choices with the casting of a white british actor to play um the egyptian in part one both just really moody stories and when i was 11 12 years old i couldn't get enough of them and i still love watching them today mm-hmm. number six is a, is a tie from you ambassadors of death not the best Pertwee. It is my favorite Pertwee. The Dudley Simpson music is the outro music to this podcast. So if you listen to the show, you hear a little bit of Ambassadors of Death every week. Uh, you have Regan is a great antagonist. And Rob Shearman and Tony Haydock speculate in the first running through Carter's that he was the inspiration for the master, giving the Doctor a human foil week in and week out. And it works. Nice. Ambassadors was criticized as being too long. I think it's worth every minute of its of its seven weeks. The great visual effects, great Dudley Simpson music. And if I remember correctly, isn't that the last time we have the uh, the mid scene sting with the episode title? Is that Ambassadors? They did it a couple of times in in the in the in the Trouton era, but this is the last time that it's done. So yeah, yeah. you have cliffhangers during the opening credits. It's it's great. Right, Ambassadors is amazing. I agree. And yes, the musical sting of the ambassadors, boom, of death, yeah. racing towards racing towards the camera. Number five, um, this is the last Hinchcliffe, The Seeds of Doom, six parts. The part three cliffhanger is probably Doctor's greatest cliffhanger ever. Tom and Sarah are on top of their game. John mm-hmm. Chalice is a great guest antagonist. Um, you have Harrison Chase, who was also the villainous voice in the horror movie When a Stranger Calls. Every little bit of Seeds of Doom is wonderful. Um, it's terrifying. It's funny. It's all done on video, and it looks on restoration as if it was shot yesterday. The Antarctic scene, yes, the snow is made of styrofoam, and it's shot on the same quarry as um, uh, as a later moment in the story you said in England. Get your hands up. 
Turn around, Doctor. Facing this way. We are not up or something. Okay, stop talking. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had perfect pitch. What happened to I, him? Who, Wolfgang Amadeus? Oh, him. Oh, he died. How did we that happen? It happened because of a pod. The pod? Look, Doctor, there's already one corpse in here. I could easily double that number. Look, he's telling you There's been an accident. One of the men was infected. By the pod? He went mad. Yes. You could say he's not quite himself. Where is he now? We don't know. Somewhere out there. Oh, you mean you have a homicidal maniac on the loose? Oh, much more dangerous than that. And he's desperate for food and warmth. There's only one place he can find food and warmth. You mean this camp? It's a comforting thought, isn't it? I think we should lock all the doors and windows. Just great stuff. Number four, <laughs> Inferno. For the first seven years, it's Doctor Who's best story out of those first seven, because every line of dialogue in episode one predicts some future plot development. It's just genius next-level writing. I just want, I just want to say, um, I told you before that, that for the longest time I didn't appreciate the John Pertwee era, especially season seven. I have to say, season seven is probably the most consistently good season in the entire classic series. Um, all four of those stories, up into Inferno, are phenomenal. Every one of them. I could have put all four of those stories comfortably at my top 60. I sat out Spearhead, and I sat out Doctor Who and the Silurians because I didn't want to have all four. I needed room for other types yeah. of stories. But every story in Season 7 is better than the one before. That means that yeah. Spearhead is the weakest of the season, and it's brilliant. So I had Spearhead and Ambassadors, and I could have done the same thing. I agree with you. Number three, The Five Doctors. Mm -hmm. I think only because I watched it so many times in the 80s and I know every line of dialogue. I think most fans, if you give them any random cue from Five Doctors, they could give you the next four or five, four or five lines of dialogue after that. Uh, it's, again, Terrence Dix giving an impossible brief. You have to work in as many Doctors and companion pairings and cameos and villains as you can. And it works. And then the end is an emotional surprise because yeah. this is Barusa's fourth story as a good guy. And all of a sudden he turns out to be the villain. You bring yeah. the you bring the Castellan back from Ark of Infinity when he was an antagonist. Then all of a sudden he becomes a tragic figure. You know, and juggling all of those characters and the only time I think that it didn't work was when the Fifth Doctor met Susan and it was just like, oh, hi. But other than that, the, he did a great job with that script. Totally agree. Yeah. Number two, City of Death. I already interrupted your top ten to cavell about City of Death, so I can watch that story over and over again. Me Never too. get sick of it. When we did a family vacation to Paris, we spent 24 hours in Paris in 2018, and I just did as much City of Death humming as possible. I, I, I timed the length of Dudley Simpson's Paris score. It was 51 seconds. And I shot exactly 51 seconds walking around the observation deck, the second floor observation deck of the Eiffel Tower. And I put it on Facebook to that music. So I had just enough video shot to match that theme. Yes. Oh, God, I love that music. 
So my my top six stories, City of Death and Ambassadors, both provide the soundtrack to Doctor Who literature. So there you have it. Mm-hmm. Number one. Now, Sean, we have – guess how many ties we had. Can you guess how many ties we had out of our 60? Uh, you mean in shared stories? Probably 30 to 40? 30 to 40? It was 22. We have 22 matches. Oh, that's it. Okay. 22 stories are on yours. I might have That's actually a really good hit rate considering how many Doctor Who stories there are. And you have good taste. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why we're friends. But number one is not on yours. Number one is – and I want to preface that season 18 – probably not my favorite season because season 18 has one story that doesn't quite work as well as the others, whereas season 7 has zero misses. Of these seven stories – in season 18, six of them are either in my top 60 or are bubbling under. I could have had every single story from season 18 except for Meglos in my top 60. I had to leave some out because, again, I'm making room for other types of stories and some stories have to speak for others. My number one is Legopolis, and that is not in your top 60. Wonderful funereal score by Patty Kingsland, who is my favorite Doctor Who composer full stop. Legopolis is my number one, and mm-hmm. I'll tell you why. Tom Baker, in his first three years, is playing a moody, dark, alien doctor. Tom Baker, in his next three years, once Graham Williams takes over, spends 40% of his time fondling the TARDIS console and doing comedy that acts outside of the four corners of the script. Then this new production team comes in, JNT and Christopher H. Bidmead, and Tom Baker is quickly out of a job before the season is over because they weren't putting up with his shenanigans. He gives, in spite of all the behind the scenes turmoil, he gives a stripped down lean haunted performance for most of season 18. And the work he does in Legopolis, the way he raises his eyes towards the heaven and says a chain of circumstances that fragments the laws that bind the universe together that's some of his best line readings ever. And he's doing it in his final story, even though he did not get along with Peter Grimwade. John Fraser, and by the way, if you don't have John Fraser's autobiography, which is a story about growing up as a closeted gay actor in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s, it is a hair-raising memoir. And he doesn't Hmm. even mention Doctor Who in it. It was only three weeks out of his life. But John Fraser's book, I can't recommend enough. He gives one of the most underrated guest performances on Doctor Who, playing this really worried genius mathematician, a character who is smarter than the Doctor and is one step ahead of the Doctor at every turn, and they're on the same side, fortunately. It's a great performance. Anthony Ainley is in his first proper performance as the Master. He does a great job. I had a greater appreciation of Anthony Ainley going through my pilgrimage than I did before. I think he's often considered the bad Master. He's not. He does no, a great not. job when the script is there. Um, Adric, when he's with Tom Baker, is a great companion. When the two of them are together, they really, even though evidently Tom Baker hated the younger man, they do really great things in their scenes together in parts one and two. Tegan is a breath of fresh air. What else can you say about Janet Fielding? Nissa, Nissa was the greatest missed opportunity in Doctor Who history, but she gets some really good stuff to do in the story. Patty Kingland's score, again, the, uh, the rock guitars, they're running around the Pharos project, that incredible graphically visual regeneration. Peter Davison sitting up and giving side eye to Janet Fielding at the end. 
Mm-hmm. If you go to 100 Doctor Who fans at Galley in February, very few are going to have Legopolis as their number one of all time, but I stand by it. Absolutely. You know, the last 10 minutes of Legopolis, <clears throat> there's only one complaint you can make, and it's that one shot where they obviously took a still of Anthony Ainley inside the, the, the whatever, the telescope. But other than that, those last 10 minutes are riveting. The scene where they're all like approaching from the Ferris Project from the different locations, and you see Tom Baker running across the field with the master, um, who then hangs hangs back. Yeah, it's great. I, everybody is great in Legopolis. I I completely agree with you about season eighteen in general. I think other than season seven, it's probably the other season that is continually the best, um, with the exception I think of Megalos is not very good, but every other story is really, really good in that in that season. And Legopolis is probably the best final story for a doctor, I think, in my opinion, given that I, I think some people would say Planet of the Spiders um for Pertwee, but but I think Legopolis is just a, a, a fun time from start to finish. And Tom is is phenomenal in it. And I agree with you, you know, Matthew Waterhouse was terrific with him. I think the only problem that I had in the first season of Davison was there were too many people in the TARDIS, which I think unfortunately was repeated again during the Jodie Whittaker era when they had three companions and it was, it didn't work the first time and it didn't work then. But um, yeah, everybody's terrific in it. And, and God, Janet is amazing in it. Janet's amazing in everything. So. Legopolis was in a way my introduction to fandom. I had started watching the show thanks to the urging of my friends John and Stephen in sixth grade. Stephen is going to be at Galley on the Saturday, by the way. He's the primary reason that I became a Doctor Who fan. I stayed with the show he didn't, but this will be his second Galley, so I'll try and introduce you guys briefly. John had collected the novelizations before any of us. He gave me a copy of Legopolis to read during lunch hour at school. I finished seven of the 12 chapters in a 40 minute lunch hour. And even at 11 years old, I didn't, I didn't know what paradise lost was. So that illusion was lost on me, but I loved the novelization. Mm-hmm. And it was a while before I found a copy on the bookstore shelf myself. But the book is one of my favorite novels of all time. Not just Dr. Who novels. If you ask me to have my top 10 favorite books of all time, Legopolis will be the one target novelization in there. Mm-hmm. Christopher H. Bidney then narrates the audiobook. As a former actor himself, and he does a great job narrating the audiobook. Nice. I have played the audio of that all the way through multiple times, which I don't do with a lot of the Target audios. It's definitely a great story. And the only thing that disappointed me about Legopolis was when I first saw it, it was like, oh, there's a new doctor, and he regenerated into Peter Davison. And the next week, we got Spearhead from Space again. So, because <laughs> we only had that loop, and we only got uh, Davison after, you know, well after I was involved in Phantom and seen other stuff. But um, yeah, great stuff. That would have been my experience because we had Caves of Androzani air the last week of January 1985. So after part four of Androzani, they didn't loop around to Twin Dilemma, which had already aired because it wasn't part of that package and they hadn't gotten to season 22 yet. They looped around from Caves of Androzani part four to Robot part one. But in a way, that cemented my fandom because I became a fan because of Peter Davison. I stayed a fan because of Tom Baker and his comedy work in part one of Robot. Robot is not on my list. It should be. Part one of Robot, I was laughing out loud, side-splitting at Tom Baker's comedy antics at 11 years old. I then put the next, I put the last 11 minutes of part one on VHS and I watched those 11 minutes over and over again the next day when I was homesick from school with the flu. 
So part one of Robot is burned into my brain. That's fine. There's reasons why it's not in my top 60, but emotionally, Robot is one of my top 10 stories because of that. The joy of discovering Tom Baker. Yeah, you know, it's 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 always subjective because everything is based upon not just the merits of the story, but how we were when we watched them. Um, like I said, you know, for the longest time, we only had Tom and then we had John Pertwee and Tom Baker. Um, later, we got um, a run of, I think we had two runs of, three runs of Davison and then two runs of Colin and Sylvester. Um, I live in the second largest TV market in the country, which is Los Angeles. And we only ever got... The Edge of Destruction, the two-parter, black and white, that was the only black and white that ever aired in Los Angeles on PBS. Um, and it was actually done, it was interesting because um, John Levine lived here and John Levine was uh, one of our pledge drive hosts, our, our regular pledge drive hosts here because he lived in, in Burbank for a long time. Um, and he was on screen doing the pledge drive where they were showing these special episodes in black and white, the edge of destruction part one and two um, as a teaser to get more, you know, pledges to KCET to show the Hartnell and Troughton package. After that, within six months, the show was completely gone off the air and they never aired those episodes. So it was the only time that we ever got black and white Dr. Who here. So I think for a lot of fans in Los Angeles, we really, we didn't really have that experience with the black and white stuff. So we never, they never became as dear to us as, you know, Tom Baker became to me for the longest time. So again, it's all, it's all based on people's experiences and how they, how they watched it, when they watched it. And like I said, hand of fear, it's that Eldrad falling down the pit to me. That's my first memory of Dr. Who. And I must, I think I must've been like 13 or 14 when that happened. The the last the Sylvester McCoy era in particular, like I told you earlier about Trial of a Time Lord with me, I saw it. I sat through at a convention. All of the Sylvester McCoy episodes, I saw the PAL versions or the converted PAL versions. I was part of a, a tape trading um, group that included myself and my friend Joe Siegler, who was in Philadelphia, who's now in Texas, and our friend Lee Whiteside, who I've been a friend of mine for 40 years, who is in Arizona. And he would actually, he had people that would convert these PAL tapes to NTSC and send them out. And I got them for us so that we could see, you know, seasons 24 through 26 here at our local, um, at our local uh, TV, excuse me, our local Doctor Who fan club um, events. And we actually had a, we had a party at a British pub in Santa Monica and watched Remembrance of the Daleks for the very first time. Um, uh, right after it had aired in the UK, a couple months later, I think. Um, and Jerry Davis and his wife at the time, Alison Bingaman came and joined us for it. We watched it together. So that was fun. So, but all of those Sylvester McCoys are very, you know, burned into my memory because of the fact that we, we watched them before they were ever aired here. And it was, it was very special to us. Wow. See. Good time. Those were times long gone. You can get it now on YouTube, you know, or, or streaming or, or torrenting or whatever. But, but in those days, that was what we had to do, you know, trading the tapes. The McCoy stories only aired once on my local PBS because they stopped showing Doctor Who in early 1992 while I was away at my freshman year of college. So I saw 10 of the 12 McCoy stories once and only once. For whatever reason, I missed Battlefield and Ghostlight. I did not get to see those stories. Fortunately, being in college in Baltimore, Maryland Public Television was showing Doctor Who up until the late 2000s. So I was able to watch Battlefield and Ghostlight in movie format in 1994 before I graduated college. Gotcha. 
But yeah, the McCoy era was kind of undiscovered for me because as opposed to the Tom Bakers and the other doctors that ran over and over again in the States from 1984 to the early 90s, McCoy only ran the one time. And that's why I didn't appreciate a lot of his stories because I was a teenager and I had a different value set. But there's a lot of McCoys, and he only did 12 stories. There's a lot of him in my top 60, and that's because having been able to see them more and more as an adult, I just appreciate them more and more every time. Yeah. I'll tell one little last story before we wrap up. Um, we actually had McCoy here before he any of his stories ever aired. I think it was at least a year. Wow. Um, so it was October 87, and it was the traveling exhibition that had gone around the country. And it, it was here in Los Angeles, and we had uh, Sylvester and Janet Fielding. Um, and I, it was, uh, it was kind of funny because Sylvester, nobody had ever seen anything that he'd done. He had just taken over the show, um, as, as the lead, but Janet Fielding's stories were airing for the very first time on KCET at that point in late 87. And it was resurrection of the Daleks weekend. And she, nobody there on the Saturday had seen this story that, well, almost nobody had seen the story. And she, the first thing she said when she got on stage was, am I gone yet? Am I gone? And then <laughs> what she was actually doing was spoiling Doctor Who for all these fans. <laughs> I told that to Janet years later and she gets a kick out of it. But um, it was, it's kind of hilarious because a lot of us, myself included, didn't know that that was her final story at that time. So um, yeah, then we went home and watched our tapes and Braveheart Tegan and there she goes. So she, she spoiled Doctor Who for a whole generation of fans. That's kind of like the way Sacha Duan spoiled the big twist mm -hmm. power of the Doctor to anybody who paid for the guest reception on that one Friday night. Yep. Yep. Gotta love him. But and I, I, I love Janet. Don't get me wrong. So she's wonderful. But she spoiled Doctor Who for me. So. <laughs> and I told her years later. So. I think she's allowed to do that. Yes, she is. She gets away. Janet can do whatever she wants. Janet's amazing. Well, Sean. I thank you so much for your generosity and spending a couple of hours on a Friday night with me, Sean. I value your friendship, and I'm very excited to see you again at Galley in a few more Absolutely. months. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I was like, I, are we just going to ramble 60 episodes? But we've had a really good time doing this. So thanks for having me, Jason. Really appreciate it. This is fun rambling. Absolutely. Thanks again, Sean. I'll see you very soon. Sounds good. Take care. And my thanks again to Sean Lyon to speaking with me from Los Angeles. Cannot thank Sean enough for taking the time out to go over his top 60 stories of all time and indulge me as I talked, perhaps a little over-enthusiastically about my own as well. Cannot wait to see Sean again. And the other delights that will be in store at the Gallifrey One Convention in Los Angeles in February 2024. We have one more week of our November 2023 four-week pause on Doctor Who novelizations here on Doctor Who Literature. Next week, we are discussing another Doctor Who book, a nonfiction book with a Doctor Who nonfiction author. And hopefully, we'll also be bringing to you a live reaction to Star Beast as my episode will release next week, a few hours, hopefully after Star Beast makes its American premiere on the Disney Plus streaming service. After that, in December, we will continue our weekly look at the Target novelizations. We are more than halfway through the series. 
we have a little less than 60 novelizations to go, but of course we will also be looking at the three companions of Doctor Who books, as well as the missing season 23, Colin Baker Adventures. So there is plenty of Doctor Who literature to go. If you are an old-time listener, thank you very much for joining me on this journey, this very long journey. If you are a new listener these past three weeks, we hope you enjoy what you've heard and continue to stick around as we dip back in time to the 1985 and beyond Target novelizations and other goodies. This episode of Doctor Who Literature was written, produced, and edited by me. The series is produced by David Barsky and Jim Sangster, as well as by yours truly, and our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. You can reach me on social media, on Blue Sky and Twitter and Mastodon at Doctor Who Novels. That's DR Who Novels. You can also find me on Gmail at Doctor Who Literature. That's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you again for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.